Neat Stuff Podcast, episode 21. Welcome to the Neat Stuff Podcast. My name is Devin. And this is Tyson. And we're back for another week of neatness. I am quite surprised that we have made it to 21 episodes. If episodes were age, um, our uh, podcast would be able to start drinking today. Oh, after this one, it might put you to drink. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> what have you been up to? Uh, this week, I have had the opportunity to check out some blooming teas. How does that work? I've actually been interested in them, but I've never actually understood the kind of the physics and biology of that. Well, it's actually kind of cool. So we went to a place called Teavana. It's they're kind of a, a mall boutique tea place. And we uh, actually ran into someone from KomoriCon, which was kind of hilarious. Um, and we talked Small about world. it. I know. Uh, we we talked about KomoriCon and anime and all that other fun stuff that's happening. And he sold us a blooming tea kettle or well not uh, or a, a blooming teapot which is a normal teapot but on the inside it has a smaller kind of beaker shaped uh sort of glassware with some slots in the bottom that you put a blooming tea ball in and this looks like just sort of like a little bag or a little a small ball of like string or something realistically hmm. so you put that in in the center then you boil some water and you pour it in there and you let it sit. And what happens is that the tea ball sort of expands outward. It sort of blooms because it, you know, the the leaves soak up with water and it expands and it comes out into some sort of plant-shaped, you know, item. Um, there's probably a lot more science-y stuff behind it and Kat could probably tell you a, a heck of a lot more. <laughs> The only thing I can tell you is that the tea takes about 20 minutes to brew, at least to the strength that I like. So it's not a quick in the morning type of tea. It's more of an aesthetic sort of tea. It's something that you do deliberately. Yes. It's not something to just kind of get you going. I think it's a type of tea that you would put, you know, as a center place and you would watch while you have conversation and then you would pour it in a very fancy type of thing i feel that everybody should be wearing at least a nice shirt and maybe some slacks and the <laughs> girls should all be in skirts and maybe have a fancy hat if they're going to be you know drinking this type of tea excellent yeah no uh we're getting ready for the ramp of over christmas thanksgiving's over uh the girls have started to hit the christmas bazaars a friend of ours was ha you know we were taking up a collection to make sure a friend of ours would be able to keep their place uh they were you know running into some financial straits but we had an interesting community building exercise around that which was cool it was very heartwarming um but yeah we're starting to pick up uh the the, the first of the christmas decorations we got a uh a wreath from the north plains um christmas bazaar molly has family out there and they always have stuff selling there so she tries to go every year and so the girls went out there with their friends and got stuff so yeah yeah so for all of you who are listening head out to your local neighborhood community center if they have a christmas bazaar of some sort and pick up some stuff it usually is for the benefit of 
some random people who need your help. Yeah, usually it's for charities or for, you know, a lot of uh, lower income people use this time of year to kind of fill in their uh, income for the Christmas season. But yeah, so go ahead and check out the Christmas bazaars, and there's lots of good stuff there. So yeah. Uh, We have also started getting ready for Christmas and Kat has a wonderful tradition of putting up probably the most gaudy tree you will ever see. It's bright pink and her walls are bright green. So it just clashes horribly. But realistic and it has like black garlands and now has this really epic uh, white bird on it that's just like... Holy crap. It, it, every year it gets a little more epic and a little more... It's epically awful. Well, you know, I think it if it was just the pink tree, it would be awful. I think just by itself. But with the amount of care Cat puts into it and the real um, fancification of the, you know, the disco... Uh, the disco fruit and the icicles and the really, you know, sparkly, glittery uh, ornaments, I think she really does a good job to to make it go, transcend awful and become epic. So, so basically you're saying it's going from incredibly bad to badly incredible. <laughs> yeah, something like that. All and, right. you know, and the highly, you know, scientific poll of the one person across the street who mentioned it to me randomly, she thought it was kind of cool. So I'm going to have to assume the rest of the neighborhood thinks it's kind of cool. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I saw some f- pictures of it. Uh, Molly saw them on Facebook. And she's like, oh, I am shocked and in awe. I don't know whether it is awesome or not, but it is awe-inspiring. <laughs> That it is. It definitely is a great thing to, you know, when you stumble downstairs to have breakfast, you're like, oh, bright and cheery and happiness. Uh, I'm too early for this. <laughs> so other than Christmas, is there anything else that you've been up to? Well, I have been playing the ever-loving F out of XCOM Enemy Unknown. What about you? Um, I'm pretty much in the same boat. Um, <laughs> I think Kat wants to uninstall that game and if there was a box copy of it burn it in a fire um yeah Yeah. not a big fan not a big fan (laughs) mainly because i will sometimes sit and play for six hours at a time that was that was basically my uh thanksgiving break (laughs) was beating xcom yeah so what about xcom we're able to grab you for those six, you know, the, 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 those how six hours of day, three days straight through the weekend, much to the annoyance of your girlfriend. Just one more mission. Just one more mission. <laughs> I know it. If I if I get if I beat this one, I'll get to the end of the month. I just need, I just got to get to the end of the month. I need just a few more dollars. I just I, I, I just need one or two more satellites, and then everything will be great. <laughs> just uh and 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 uh, if I if I wait for just like two or three more days, then my my best troop will come out of the hospital, and and hopefully it'll be just in time for the next abduction, and then uh. I'll totally like destroy everything. But no, no, <laughs> always have to run with the noobs. Oh. Uh, so for the people who don't know, uh, XCOM is was recently released. Uh, sorry, XCOM Enemy Unknown was recently released, but that's not the only XCOM, is there? No, actually, uh, back in 1994, the original XCOM quote-unquote game, which was actually called UFO Enemy Unknown, was released. And this is a set in the near future 
where an alien army decides that they want to take over Earth. You are the commander of an elite multinational force called XCOM, short for Extraterrestrial Combat Unit. It's not X for Extreme? It, well, they use the X in Extraterrestrial. Ah. And, it, you know, and realistically, if you look at the acronym, it should be ECU. But they're like, you know what? XCOM sounds cooler because it has an <laughs> X in it. So we're going to go with that. Awesome. Um, so the game has two modes. There's this strategy portion, which is in your base, building up your base, watching the world, you know, scanning for alien activity, making, you know, building up different facilities, training your troops, that kind of stuff, uh, and managing their troop loadouts. And then they have a tactical base where that's when alien combat happens and you send your best, well, not, okay, you send, you send five or six troops depending on who is wounded and who you actually want to be cannon fodder that round out on missions to fight the aliens. And that is really the brilliance of the XCOM games. Um, you know, you've got your tactics games, your, you know, either your real-time strategy games like Command and Conquer or whatnot, or you've got your, uh, your tactical turn-based games like the old Fallout Tactics and other sort of isometric top-down view games. But XCOM c combined that very, you know, in the dirt work with this overarching worldview where you're not just trying to make it through the next mission, you're trying to make sure you're ready for the next mission. Uh, it's something that uh, a lot of tactic games kind of put a veneer on that you are actually doing this. I know Command and Conquer kind of gave you the impression that you that this was the the what was going on, but if you failed a mission in Command and Conquer, you couldn't progress in the story. It didn't actually affect the story other than make you retry the mission. Uh, same thing with uh, you know StarCraft. Um, some mission, some the new Dawn of War uh, squad-based tactics game. Uh, they kind of had this, but not to quite the extent that XCOM does. And that is one of the things that really has made a lot of people waiting for XCOM because no one has really been able to get it right as far as that, uh, that balancing act between the strategy and tactical side. What I really like about XCOM is that your mission today will affect you in missions in the future. The big thing that makes XCOM XCOM is that permadeath is enabled. If one of your troops dies on a mission, they're dead. Mm -hmm. You don't get to get them back. And it's it's one of those things that you got to be very careful because if you're caught off, if you get flanked, if you're off and the aliens get a lucky shot, that guy is dead. And there's nothing you can do about it. And what's nice is that if you survive, your you know squaddies or rookies level up and suddenly, you know, after 10, 15 missions, they're now these total badasses who dodge the first shot, who carry two rockets and two grenades, who are able to shoot all the way across the map. And, you know, they really have this sort of continuity between each fight that it's not you fight this mission and then everything resets and you have your, you know, base, your your main base and that's it and a bunch of SCVs like you Spawn do in StarCraft. Spawn more overlords. Yeah, that you have to, con you know, you could end the, the one map with massive numbers of troops and it just wipes them all away and you start off fresh. It's frustrating and it doesn't provide the continuity between the, the levels. It's not you make an achievement and that achievement other than giving you access to the next task doesn't actually 
count towards anything. Yeah, you can actually get into a situation where you lose the game um, just by you ran out of troops. You, um, If eight nations leave the XCOM, you lose that. If you run out of, you know, if you just fail all your missions or you fail the final mission, you lose the game. And in, they have a mode called Iron Man mode. Otherwise known as the, you know, play it like it used to be in 1994. <laughs> yeah, where you, where you can't save and go back to an old save. So if you lose, if you play for 20 hours and you get to the final boss and you fail the final boss, that's it. You get to start all over again. You play for 20 hours and then you have one bad map and all of your elite troops get wiped and you're down to just squatties again <laughs> for the last mission, it is not very forgiving if you play it that way. But the uh, the normal mode, the, the kind of intro, the, it's not so much easy mode, uh, but it's the kind of the normal mode, um, is pretty, is a lot more forgiving, does allow the saving and whatnot. So you can really ramp the difficulty on by how much you really want to put into it. So... This, the plot isn't all that surprising or amazing. It's the tactics and the gameplay which really bring it home. So if you haven't played it and you like strategy and you like tactics and you like kind of taking your time to think and having those moments of, okay, it's a 75% shot. I really hope if I miss this, this guy's fucked. <laughs> uh, my ass is in the wind. This shotgun had better connect. I know it says 75%, but if this misses, this guy is dead. Or, oh, <laughs> I have a 25% chance to hit this. If I hit this, my guys are going to live. But if I don't, uh, take the shot. Take uh, the shot. Take the shot. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so it has some really great moments and oh, totally. lots of cursing will be had <laughs> yeah anyway XCOM is the latest in a long tradition of alien invasion stories that goes all the way back to 1898 to H.G. Wells and the War of the Worlds um, if you're not familiar with this uh, the World of the Worlds is really the first in the prototypical alien invasion story uh, it's broken up into two parts. First, the invasion itself and kind of how these invaders from Mars uh, land, how the humans react to them, how they eventually start conquering the world. And then the second part is really starting to look at some... Uh, it really gives you an, uh, an idea of the state-of-the-art science at the time around evolutionary biology and germ warfare and whatnot, and it's kind of how the aliens are driven off, not by our force of arms or whatnot. It's just that, you know, our world, we are tailored to live on our world because we've tailored ourselves to it over the various millennia. You know, if, if we didn't, we'd die. And, you know, them coming into this very alien environment with the alien parasites and pathogens that we have to deal with, uh, they couldn't handle it. And you know, basically they died. It's a really straightforward, simple story. Um, but it was really one of the, you know, first ones of its kind. And it spawned not just reproductions of that story, but also the whole genre of alien invasion stories. Um, the first time, uh, one of the first adaptations of War of the Worlds was in uh, 1938 and the famous Orson Welles broadcast where, <laughs> yeah, um, 
they did a uh, live um, adaptation where they actually had actors coming in playing the parts. And they'd break into the radio program every few minutes with a new with a news anchor, uh, kind of you know, you know, saying they they weren't doing it continuously. They'd have a you know music, and then they'd break in and do more of the story. Then there'd be music. They'd break in and do more of the story to the point where it created this huge panic. And you know, there were people in New York, you know in rural New York that could swear they could smell the mustard gas just coming over the ridge. I mean, there was literal panic in the streets over this. It really shows the power of media and how people that when people have only one real source of news, that it's very easy to get in and feed information into that news source. And suddenly they think, Oh my gosh, the 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 world is on fire, the sky is falling, the world, you know, the countries far and away are getting blown up, you know, all these crazy things just because they don't have enough sources of information to know that oh, wait, no, this is entertainment. And since the quality was so good, people couldn't tell the difference. Actually, that's a good point, but I'm going to have to disagree with you on that point though. Oh. Because this broad this adaptation uh world of worlds has been adapted to radio twice at least at least two times since these are the two big ones the first uh the, the next adaptation was in ecuador in 1949 now the original war of the world story had been in the newspapers worldwide a decade you know previous to this but the radio station there decided to pull their own war of the worlds Literally to the same effect. Panic in the streets. People were trying to evacuate. It actually ended with a couple of the uh, radio operate the, the, the radio uh, station uh, workers dying uh, in the panic. Basically, it, it it you know the army was literally mobilized. It, it was crazy, and then in Buffalo, New York, you know where. People had listened to the original Orson Welles broadcast 30 years later in uh, 1968. A radio station did an adaptation. This time they were coming in and out of the uh, broadcast with you know music of like of the period so music of the moody blues or other sort of modern uh, music. And it, again, uh, caused another panic. Could it be that H.G. Wells is just that good of a writer? And it just he just is able to nail those points and make people just go, ah! I don't know. But there was a really good radio lab for it uh, back in March of 2008. We're putting the link in the show notes. You can go listen to it. It's a really good show. Um, and it really did, uh, it really kind of goes into kind of the effects of the broadcast and maybe the why and wherefore way more than we can go into here. And honestly, they're way smarter. (laughs) They talk to some way smarter people than us about this. So yeah, I would definitely check that out. But the cool thing about World of the Worlds is like I said, it, it inspired many other works of alien invasion fiction from the tripod series, which is basically 
what if the second half of War of the Worlds didn't happen and the aliens stuck around for, say, a hundred years? What would society have changed uh, and, you know, how would society look after under alien occupation? But also, you know, not just novels, but also movies and TV shows. So, Devin, what is one of your favorite alien invasion movies? Well, it's kind of embarrassing to say this. But one of my favorite is actually Mars Attacks. <laughs> it's a super cheesy B-movie that is based off of a trading card set that was released by Topps in 1962. Um, it's kind of... I kind of like it just because of the ridiculousness of it. Uh, it was directed by Tim Burton and has a number of really famous actors like Jack Nicholson, Pierce Brosnan, Michael J. Fox, and Natalie Portman. And it's actually, it, it is the stereo, like stereotypical to the T classic alien invasion hysteria film where the aliens come, they just kill everybody and everything indiscriminately. And the humans are like, no, we, we must have peace. We must not be destroyed by these guys. And the aliens are like, yeah, that's funny. Pzzat, laser beam, laser beam, claws, claws, death. <laughs> Yeah, it, it really, I love it because it really spoofs a lot of that classic pulp Cold War sci-fi as well as the, the, the classic B-movie alien invasion movies of the 50s and 60s. It just, and even to the 70s, it just tears in, it uses every trope of, you know, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and every bad bee invasion, you know, alien or monster invasion movie back, in, you know, in the in the, in the pulp eras, really. So. Yeah. Yeah. Just even I, I think it's a good showcase of just how dumb humans can be when faced <laughs> with an alien invasion. And it's a and it's basically a story of this is how you don't deal with aliens. <laughs> this is like the worst possible way you could possibly do it. If it wasn't for some really weird, um, just random happenstance. Yeah. Random happenstance um, where grandma saves the day. Uh, everybody would have died horribly. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're looking for something a little bit more serious and a little bit more drama filled, there's always uh, Independence Day, uh, the classic ID for the Will Smith and uh, Jeff Goldblum. Save the world. It's a lot of fun. Um, it is a more serious invasion movie where aliens make a big show of force at the start and start blowing up parts of the world. Uh, much more military-based uh, focus on action and drama. Yeah, it's it actually has, you know, they try nuking them, they try using missiles and planes, and there's a lot of dogfights and all these different things. And it kind of has that, you know, you know, using science and technology to beat the aliens and, or to take away the aliens' greatest strength to allow conventional weapons to defeat it. It's actually one of those things where, you know, that there's always this discussion when you talk about super weapons and these massive technological miracles. If you're a, if you use that instead of good training and good weapons and good reliable troops, you'll lose if someone takes away that technology. You could be the greatest force in the world, but if you lose suddenly lose that technological edge and you're not prepared for it, you're done. So it's a great movie, very inspiring, has a lot of great humorous movement moments, um, and it's and it's just 
it, it is cliche, but it's still really good sort of disaster, you know, disaster kind of film with lots of stuff blowing up, has good special effects. Actually, uh, just a quick plug. There's a radio drama that I follow called Children of the Gods, which is kind of set in the, you know, a couple hundred years later when the actual fleet shows up that, you know, the the uh, the ID4 fleet was just kind of the initial scouting fleet. They were the follow-up scouting and survey fleet. And then, they're not, you know, so humans ha- are, you know, now an interplanetary species. And then the actual fleet shows up. And it's really interesting. The, the people that do it are kind of trying for a very wing, not, not wing commander the movie, but wing commander the game style, very um, realistic dogfighting, very realistic tactics, kind of the, the realities of working in space. We'll put, I'll put, drop a, sh- uh, you know, link in the show notes um but actually and it's got pretty decent radio drama you know production value but another series that i really like is v the mini series now this isn't the tv sh- the, the 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 one season long tv show uh that ran a couple years ago no this is back in the 80s uh where <clears throat> um an alien race comes in a giant armada but this time they literally come with a message of peace and par- uh, partnership. They have advanced technologies and they have uh, needs to uh, for Earth's oceans, basically, to help them manufacture some chemicals and whatnot necessary for their life support systems and for the survival of their home planet. Yeah, they basically need the water. Yeah, well, we don't know that yet. I mean, it, it, originally it's just they need help. They need a, a, a you know some base on on a planet to manufacture these chemicals and whatnot. They can't really do it in space, and they basically just need to. They they can extract everything they need from living you know from seawater that has living stuff in it. So they're like, all right, so yeah, sure, we'll set you up on all the coasts, and it you know it starts off very very you know friendly it's very interesting there's you know but it is as you uh as you learn throughout this as the miniseries goes on they do have hidden agendas one of them they're stealing all of our water uh and gonna leave earth a barren wasteland because you know they use uh fusion and all their drives and that requires a lot of hydrogen so uh but among and but they also need us for other things because they turn out to be not the mammalian looking uh friendly humanoids that you know we originally think of them but yeah uh soon a resistance movement springs up as uh scientists uh, start becoming persecuted and many are starting to disappear. Uh, it, uh, kind of a anti-science hysteria gets started up, especially among the human scientists who uh, uh, evidence starts showing that, you know, things like uh, cures for cancer or improved energy sources had been discovered but had been kind of kept away from the public for unknown reasons and so it really kind of shows how a a small uh how without a lot of you know actual direct conflict how a society and you know how uh how people can be co-opted in out of fear and self-interest to do things that really 
are against their own self-interest. Um, and, but I really suggest taking a look at it, looking it up. Uh, the special effects is kind of dated. A lot of the CGI shot or a lot of the model shots are, um, are reused regularly. So you see the same dog fights over and over again. But once you get beyond that, the acting is on top. Um, it is just very good. The actual plot is great. And honestly, one of the problems with a lot of shows like this or fiction around this is that it seems very unbelievable that, you know, some, that, that, that this sort of thing could happen. And yet they're able to walk you through the, just the very small steps that lead you to the horrible, horrible conclusion. Yeah, well, speaking of freedom fighters and scientists saving the world through science (laughs) and lots and lots of shooting um, (laughs) is a game called Half-Life 2. Now, this is the sequel to the original game, which is Half-Life, which actually put a little-known company named Valve on the map. Yeah, that, whoever heard of a company called Valve? What sort of company name is Valve, really? Yeah, and their 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 uh, games distribution program called Steam. Whoever uses Steam for anything? I know. That's silly. Such a silly, silly name. Who would use anything but Origin when you really get down to it? <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Oh, man, that's, that's terrible. Yeah, okay, but no. Half-Life is where it all began. So Half-Life 1 is one of the best shooters of all time. It's simple, it has a good story, it has a good length, it has good pacing. I mean, it's an amazing game. Oh, yeah, I, I still go back and play that every now and then just to get back into Half-Life 1. And Half-Life 2 is top-notch. It really improves. In the Half-Life series, you play Gordon Freeman, the ultimate mute scientist who (laughs) is one of the few people who has a doctorate at MIT that never uses it for anything useful because he's constantly running around pushing buttons and shooting shooting things. things. It's kind of his stick, but he's really good at it. Um yeah, he's well, he's about as good as you are at it. So if you really suck at video games, he's actually really terrible at it. But <laughs> that's beside the point. Um, Half-Life 2 picks up about 20 years after the course of Half-Life 1, where at the end of Half-Life 1, you're kind of, you know, put in, put in suspended animation for a bunch of various reasons that, you know, you'll see. In Half-Life 2, you come out and you end up in City 17, which is basically a city that's already been conquered by aliens, which kind of sucks, but (laughs) most people live like, you know, they're under a really oppressive rule. It's really sad. Very Eastern Europeans, uh, you know, feeling to everything, you know, very kind of run down, boarded up, but also very industrial. Yeah. And so you show up and you start doing your hero thing, which running around, shooting up a bunch of combine, fighting head crabs and zombies and running around and yeah just when the you, you, what just when you get done with the you know you're like all right I've got a handle on these combine there's zombies yeah, or they're head crab zombies and just when you have a handle on the head crab zombies there's even faster wall climbing head crab zombies that you know, jump off of the bodies and poison you and are even nastier than the last type of... It's just... It never ends. But you do get your trusty gravity gun and can fling saw blades at people, which is 
awesome. No one can tell me that the gravity gun isn't awesome. And what's cool is that you join the resistance and you start fighting for humanity and you do all these different things. And, and Half-Life 2 actually has two additional episodes after it. And the great thing about the Half-Life series is that it showcases Valve Valve's game engine. So Half-Life 1 was the original. Half-Life 2 was based off of the Source engine, which is used to make hundreds of other games. I mean, Counter-Strike, TF2, Left 4 Dead. Um, Portal. Tons of mods. And and the Half-Life 2 Deathmatch uh, is is a actually really fun and simple you know, deathmatch arena game that's very accessible. And it just having that allows you to play all these different mods and all these different games. So um, it's a part of gaming culture. And if you haven't played it, you are missing out. Really are. And usually if you keep an eye on Steam, uh, you can get a really nice bundle of all of the Half-Life games for very inexpensive. So not only do you get to play as Gordon Freeman, but in some of the original Half-Life 1, they had expansion games where you got to play as... uh, Barney, the security guard. And one of the uh, Special Forces guys that come in to hunt down Gordon Freeman. So it is... a And uh, Barney has shown up in Episode 2. Uh, in Half Life Two, he's a ma- he's a main NPC in Half Life Two, but your special forces guy ends up in cold storage at the end of his game, and he hasn't shown up yet. So I am really hoping that they do something fun with him. Yes. So um, there's a ton of back history behind Black Mesa and all the different things that happen. So go dive onto the internet and check out some stuff. There's a ton of of stuff. It's a great rabbit hole. But there's a great rabbit hole to fall into, and it's definitely a lot of fun. Speaking of culture, of gaming culture and scientific culture and that all that fun stuff, our last neat thing is something that you can't talk about aliens without bringing up. It's the X-Files, the classic government conspiracy slash supernatural exploration story. Uh, this was really groundbreaking and really still... Pr- the first four or five seasons of it really hold up even today. I mean, sure, there's some cheesy internet episodes and some really, che- really cheesy internet episodes, actually, where no one understood what the internet was, but they knew it was important. Um, but beyond that, yeah. No, it follows uh, Fox Mulder, an FBI agent who believes in the supernatural and is on a hunt for proof for it in the end for proof for aliens through the FBI's X-Files, which are basically files that are unexplained or unclosable. And he gets assigned a partner, Dana Scully, who is a uh, medical doctor who is also an FBI agent who is originally sent in to keep an eye on Fox and make sure that he's not operating outside of, you know, what, you know, what good FBI procedure is. And so they, you know, explore these X-Files, which are a collection of classified FBI files that are unsolved due to the strange and sometimes otherworldly nature of the reports. And it plays well for the first about five seasons where Mulder, who believes, you know, pretty much 
unabashedly in the supernatural slash aliens and Scully, who is very skeptical as well as fairly religious. So it's a really fall. It really explores a lot of themes of science and religion of faith versus belief versus, you know, skepticism. It's really fun. What's nice about the series is that it's a scientific thriller. So, you know, each episode kind of is encapsulated in its own bit when there's a few kind of those overarching continual stories or they do a throwback to older episodes. Um, And a lot of it is, you know, the science can kind of be explained sort of what's going on. It's very weird and paranormal and other stuff. But when you really down and when you really sit down and think about it, you can kind of figure stuff out, even if it is, oh, it's alien, you know, advanced alien technology, if that's the explanation for it. (laughs) But, you know, there's, it's a good adventure and there's a lot of mystery and not really knowing what's going on. And a lot of the stuff is, you know, people using supernatural powers to commit crimes or to kill people and them trying to figure out how to combat that. So, and I actually had a wonderful episode with Jack Black in it, which I still is still one of my favorites, but yeah. Uh, so you should check it out. Definitely. Um, it's uh, up on Hulu plus it's also up on Netflix. So I would definitely, Definitely check it out. And yeah. And with that, we come to the end of the Neat Stuff podcast, our alien filled extravaganza. If you have a wild story of a trip to Area 51 where all the little green men were hidden and experimented on, as we all know is true, I'm looking at you, smoking man. Pack that up into an email and send it to neatstuffpodcast at gmail.com. And you can check out all of our past episodes at neatstuffpodcast.com. So there you can find the RSS feed with all the episodes. And we are on iTunes. So find us there and give us a five-star review because we're awesome. Yay. So from the Neat Stuff crew, my name is Devin. And this is Tyson. See you next week.